welcome to episode 9 of the Autism Podcast. This week I speak with Joanna Grace. Jo specialises in sensory engagement and inclusion. She is a trainer, author, TEDx speaker and founder of the Sensory Projects. She talks about all of the educational work she does, drawing upon her vast knowledge of the sensory world. She speaks of the training she does up and down the country to many diverse professionals from health and care, education, as well as parents and carers. All are interested in learning how to better understand and enrich the lives of those in their care, that being those with disabilities whose main experience of the world comes through the senses. Joe highlights the huge need there is for positive change amid so many problems. The work she does seems even more vital and precious against the backdrop of a system reeling from damaging cuts. It was a total privilege to have this opportunity to interview such a wonderfully enthusiastic and altruistic person who dedicates her work to such worthy goals. Okay, hi Joe. It's good to have you here with us on the Autism Podcast. So my first question is, most people have heard of the five senses, but know very little else about the sensory world. Can you explain to our listeners some more about the world of sensory processing? Well, I go to more than five senses on the project, so I tend to run to seven senses. That's purely for pragmatic reasons. I get into Twitter chats with people who say, oh, we've got nine senses, we've got 11 senses, and and they're right. We do have a lot of subconscious sensory systems. And if you want to get technical about it, we've got 33 sets of neurons that control our senses, so arguably you've got 33 senses. But I think for the general population, there are two misconceptions with the senses that are worth looking at. And one is that all of us experience sensation in the same way. So the only place in general population where this is understood better is with food. When you invite people around to dinner, you don't expect them all to like what you like to taste. But for the rest of our senses, we'll say things like, oh, the music's too loud, the lights are too bright, and, and we assume that our sensation of the world is the same as everybody else's. And for most people, our interpretation of those experiences falls within a common ground but some individuals are processing that information very differently and it's not for us to say that their processing is wrong it's for us to respect that their experience is different to ours and then the other one is that sensing is a two-part process it's partly the receptor sense organs taking in the information from the world and it's partly the brain making sense of that information and so i work with people who have cortical sensory impairments and they um, have a sensory impairment not because their sense organs don't work so like one of my friends is blind her eyes work perfectly Mm. her eyes can see but her brain doesn't understand the information and when we're looking at people's sensory processing Partly, it could be a receptor issue, but it could also be some kind of confusion happening in the brain that is changing your experience of the world and making it, it's only a problem when it stops your access to your environment. You know, it's fine to 
register sound a bit louder than other people or to not hear it as well as other people it's when that becomes a, a point of access so if I can't hear what you're saying then I can't join in the conversation and if the environment is too visually bright for me or too visually stimulating for me then I can't access my visual environment and then it becomes a problem. Yeah I can see how your work is so vital to a lot of people and um, to families so I'm sure they'll learn a lot from uh, having you on the podcast um, I know that um, I met up with you briefly and you taught me in a, a brief space of time, like a, a condensed version, you know, a whole sort of lifetime. I talk very quickly, you know, is what um, you're saying. Yeah, a, a sort of lifetime's work in, in um, an hour. And that sort of started me on my journey because, um, as you know, my son is nonverbal. But um, there's so many other ways that we communicate. He'll communicate uh, through you know through touch through using uh, pictures you know making sounds but um, yeah. yeah so it's exactly like what you're saying that, that yeah. type of sensory communication is a lot of what I do because when and you mentioned that your son is nonverbal he's nonverbal but he's an extraordinarily skilled communicator mm. and the idea that you have to have words in order to be able to communicate is one that is formed from a very biased brain and when we acquire language, it actually changes the structuring of our brain. So it has an enormously biasing effect on our view of the world. And as people who use language, and I tend to call us linguistic beings, so as linguistic beings, we view the world in a very particular way. And we also think that language is super important, but it's super important to our brains because our brains use language. And if you don't if you haven't acquired language that changes how you lay down your memories it changes the way you store information in the brain it changes the way you process information and understand all sorts of things so you view the world very differently and the idea that words are the tool for exchanging meaning is it just misses out a lot you know if you define literacy as the sequencing and sharing of words then you exclude from literacy a whole group of people who will never use words. Mm. But if you define literacy as the sequencing and sharing of meaning, then you can include in literacy a whole that, that group of people. But also you can share conversations with those people. And I, I get very excited when I'm able to share a conversation with somebody who's nonverbal, not because that person is particularly special in any way, just because, you, you know, imagine if, there was a man who lived up on the hill, like an old-fashioned hermit, and nobody had ever spoken to him. Mm. Even if his stories are really boring, you're going to be interested in talking to him because you're the only person that did. And to be able to share in sensory conversations is to be able to be privileged by the points of views of people who see the world in a different way to you. So it's lovely to be let in on those things. And through sharing sensory meaning, you can you can do that. Yeah, I love the way you've, you've sort of got this inventiveness that you can encapsulate with imagery how how people are learning how different people are learning and I, th I remember you once told me about the, the way my son was developing his learning when he was very young you talked about walking a path like a mm -hmm. treading a path would you like oh, to elaborate on that <laughs> I know what you mean yeah um, the wiring with the brain yeah so the sensory stimulation, I mean, I, I'm, I run a thing called the Sensory Project, so obviously I, yeah. I'm quite invested in the sensory world and I'm quite enthusiastic about it. But one of the reasons that I am so enthusiastic about it is because exposure to sensory experience in early development isn't just a nice supporting act for cognition, 
it is how the brain gets wired in early development. Mm. So when you access sensation, it sends a little electronic pulse through your neural synapses and those synapses meet and connect and a trace is left in the brain. And through time with repetition, those traces become established neural pathways. And it's those neural pathways that we use for thinking and understanding and processing and all of those lovely things. And that little explanation that I've just given you is a bit like, the science from a shampoo ad it's just a little sort of blip i like to think of it as if you imagine the early brain as a densely overgrown forest when you have a sensory experience say you have a visual experience that sends somebody walking through that forest and where their feet fall maybe a few blades of grass are bent over but basically one experience the the forest is left unchanged it's still a densely overgrown forest that person walking through the forest that's the electronic pulse going through the neural synapses so you need repeated experience you need a multitude of visual experience so that somebody walks that pathway again and again and again and through time with repetition what was a trace in the brain becomes you know that pathway through the forest becomes a a muddy footpath a a little you know paving stone path a a road a motorway a superhighway it becomes an established neural pathway and at the same time as you're having those visual experiences hopefully you're also having touch or proprioceptive experiences and they're cutting a different pathway so you imagine that forest with one pathway going across it one way and one pathway going across it another and at some point those paths are going to meet and cross over and those connections that get made in the brain when we experience sensation in that way are that is the wiring of the brain and there are some gorgeous images you can see of the neural um, synapses forming those pathways and we up until about age two we put in masses and masses of pathways in our brain through the sensations that we experience and some of the people that I work on behalf of have a very limited set of sensory experience Mm. up until the age of two Um, if you spend a lot of time in hospital you've had one sort of palette of sensory experiences and it might be diverse within itself but it's not the same as a child who's got to go to the beach and has been in a big city and has, and has been in a hospital environment. There's lots of these different sensory palettes that we can choose from. And if you've had a limited access, you've had a limited capacity to put in those, to put in that foundational wiring in the brain. And some children, because of their sensory differences, will limit themselves. They will withdraw from experience because it's difficult for them. And so you end up not having access to experience, not because you're in a hospital bed, but because you yourself are putting a block in the way. And so finding ways to encourage people to have different experiences and to do so in a, you know, a joyful and fun way. You don't want to be forcing people to smell stuff or touch stuff mm. is, is, has lovely cognitive benefits as well as benefits to engagement and communication. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, uh, that's exactly how I sort of work with my son repetition 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 you know Mm -hmm. and it might take years for them to learn a a simple skill even but it's a huge thing for them once they learn it yeah and that's interesting that you say repetition so one of the things that i'm known for doing um is writing sensory stories yeah and a sensory story is a really concise text you get like eight to ten sentences And each sentence of that story is partnered with a sensation. And over the course of a story, you would aim to stimulate all, all, all in quotation marks, the sensory systems. I'm aiming to go for seven. You can, you can go for more if you like. Um, 
And so as you tell somebody that story, you share the meaning of the story in the words, and maybe they can access the words, but you also share the meaning equally through the stimulation, and perhaps they can access the stimulation. And for people who struggle with their sensory processing, quite often the multi-sensory environment is an awful big ask because you're being asked to taste and smell and see and do all these things at once. And in one of my sensory stories, the stories are multi-sensory across the whole story, but they're mono-sensory as you tell them. So you're being asked to smell, you're being asked to touch, but you're not being asked to do these things simultaneously. And if I was trying to encourage somebody to extend the sensory experiences that they currently engaged in, so like quite often uh, it's things like um, people not wanting to touch sticky, wet things. And actually, although like not wanting to touch sticky, wet things is like seems perfectly fine. I don't particularly want to touch sticky, wet things either. Mm. It is actually a really key skill in eating because eating is using a part of your body that is highly sensitive to touch to touch sticky, wet things. And if you struggle with touching sticky, wet things on your fingers, you're very likely to struggle with touching sticky, wet things in your mouth. So learning to be able to do it with your hands is a step towards learning to be able to do it with your mouth. So it's it's more important than it at first seems. So if I was trying to get you to touch sticky, wet things, I'd write you a sensory story about a topic you love, um, and I'd resource that story with all sorts of other stimulation that I know that you're really motivated by. So it would be a wonderful story for you to experience. But within it would be one experience that was going to be the sticky wet one. Mm. And I would build you up to that. So I tell the story in the same way each time so that you know what's going to happen and you feel safe and it's predictable. And when things are repeated like that and become predictable, there's no anxiety about change there's no what's gonna you Mm. you basically all those things that you might think you want from a story like the surprises of what's you take all of those away so that they absolutely know what's gonna come next and they know what the story is so it's a really really safe predictable place and this is something that i would do with children with autism but all children love to tell like a favorite story on repeat because it engenders those feelings of safety and security and some adults will go back to the story that they read as a child in times of crisis to reread them because that repeating of a familiar story is a really soothing and like lovely experience so you put into that repeated story this sensation and then you build it up and you can either build it up sometimes I build it up by um, proximity so I'll tell the story and the first time there's the sticky touch experience I'll just touch it and I'll be at quite a distance from you And then the next time I tell the story, I'll touch the experience, but I'll be sitting next to you. And the next time I tell the story, I'll touch it and I'll expect you to just touch it a little bit and I'll build you up like that. Or I might build up the sensation itself. So maybe the sticky touch is going to be presented in a bowl. So the first time I tell the story, it's just an empty bowl and I ask you to put your hands into the bowl. And then the next time I tell the story, the inside of the bowl is a bit wet. And then the next time I tell the story, the bowl has got water in it. And the next time it's got Mm. custard in it until, you know, on the umph telling of the story, it's some horrible, sticky, gungy thing. But because you're familiar with the routine of the story and you know that right after you put your hand in the bowl comes the next sentence of the story. And it just so happens that with the next sentence of the story, you get chocolate Mm -hmm. (laughs) you're motivated to stay in that story and and to take part so it's it's it can be a nice way of introducing sensation to people Mm, that's a marvelous way to look at the things like motivating i know that as a parent myself (laughs) motivating and keeping an interest and trying to 
get rid of anxieties as well. Um, it goes both ways as well, doesn't it? That's yeah. something that you and your son have taught me, or you and your son and, and other people, you know, in similar situations to you. Partly, we are trying to help them to learn a particular skill or to get them to eat a particular food. But it's also worth having the conversation in the other way and taking the time. Your son is particularly good at telling you about the beauty of trees and Hmm. nature and that slowing down of your stressed, busy life to go, oh, yeah, actually, that tree is lovely. I should have Hmm. noticed that. It's definitely got a give and take to it in sensory conversations. Yeah, yeah, It's especially as when he does vocalise, it's something special, so I want to motivate him to do that and nature is a great way of doing that because he enjoys it so much and so how have your own experiences in life brought you to concentrate all your work in this field oh oh gosh Um, (laughs) so there's a very big answer to a very concise question um i'm my background is as a special educator so I worked the majority of my career in the school for children with severe and profound special educational needs and disabilities but I have a a background in inclusion that predates that so like I first worked as a support worker for a brain injured gentleman when I was 13 and I have family members with physical disabilities and neurodiverse conditions but I think what brings me to what I do now is just that Um, I've just done more through life of what I'm good at and less of what I'm bad at. So if you pop me into a different situation, I am a a not very functional person with not very many abilities. But I was always quite good. I spent a lot of my childhood playing with cardboard boxes. So coming up with cheap, inexpensive sensory resources, which is what my projects focus on. Because I think if you're trying to be inclusive but you're using a product somebody else can't afford... It's not so, you know, as Mm. as lovely as your product might be, it's not going to be inclusive. So most of my sensory stories are resourced from things you could find in your kitchen or, you know, down the back of the sofa. Um, So having that willingness to play creatively was something that I was good at as a child and hopefully continue to be good at. certainly have. (laughs) I'm also a big geek. Um, Mm. So I like... Well, like is a strong word when I'm actually doing it, but I read a lot of research into the the sort of field that I work in because I like what I do to be underpinned, you know, by my own background and experience. And I said I've worked in special education settings. I've now worked in adult care settings as well. And I've had other roles, like I was a foster carer for children with complex disabilities. So I have all of this personal experience and professional experience. But even with, like, oodles of personal and professional experience, I'm just one person and I'm often wrong. So I like to check what I'm saying against the research archives. And if terribly clever people in universities have spent three years working out a thing, it's worth me knowing it. And I think what I am professionally now, um, (laughs) the best description for my current professional role is I am a yogurt pop telephone because I just carry messages back and forth between research and practice. So between parents who are, you know, living this experience every day and professionals who know about how the sense of sight works. And I'm just carrying those conversations back and forth. So I'm a professional yoga pot telephone. (laughs) It's marvellous. Yeah. (laughs) It's a marvellous image. But you've been very much at the forefront of creating ways for people to learn 
more about the sensory world. You know, you've you've written books um, on it on the topic. You do workshops. You're up. You're sort of traveling up and down the country every day. Edu- you're educating the educators. You know, you're you're um, talking to teachers about it and other professionals. And you've got a marvelous ethos, inventing ways for carers and teachers to create sensory objects like you do from these inexpensive items. I think it's wonderful. And you certainly had a major influence on special education and the way, you know, everything is going now. It's moving forward a lot more positively because of you. I've been incredibly fortunate to be in the position that I am in. There's a lot of people who have great creative practice and there's a lot of people who know a lot more about this stuff than me. And that the reason why I was doing it, like I have the creativity and I have the geekiness. The other thing that I do an awful lot of is social media. So Mm. sometimes I'm just the person that people have heard of and I get um, knocked by people for how much time I spend on Facebook and how much time I spend on Twitter. But it's that same, you know, argument that you would use with your children. We communicate with people in the way in which they communicate. And through social media, I can connect and communicate with a with a group of people who haven't got the time to go to a conference or, you know, who've just about got enough time to write a tweet and then they need to be doing something else. And Twitter and Facebook, Facebook particularly, is one of my main ways of having conversations with parents. And those conversations with parents are they, they are the most important conversations because they are the, the top level of professional when it comes to supporting the young people that they support. They are the people who know them best and they are the experts in the field way beyond myself and any other professional who might sort of put their two pence in about what you might want to do with your child. Mm-hmm. And the reason that I am in this privileged position is because of people like you And it will be difficult for me to explain to your audience without crying the role that James has played in what I do today, because what I do today was originally a Kickstarter project. And the Kickstarter project was just to write five sensory stories. It was my biggest dream in life to write those five sensory stories. And as James has just said, I am now a published author of five books. One of those books has got five sensory stories in it. Um, another, you know, others of the books have got sensory stories. There's been two children's books published that are sensory stories presented like typical children's books. I spend my whole life talking about this, these things. I'm, there's just been so many exciting things have happened to me. And those original five stories, I sell those five stories and that funds the writing of more. And there's now 20 stories published by the sensory projects and 11 more published by other organizations. So my original, big dream of five stories and that was a big impossible dream has escalated out of all control and every day that I wake up and get to do what I do is a case of like pinch myself am I dreaming how can this have been how how amazing is it that I get to do this and I get to meet all these people and have these conversations and that having those conversations has an impact when you see what your words have done in the life of a child or the life of an adult or like a population group it it's amazing to have been able to to have those words and my kickstarter project would not have been funded were it not for people like james who backed it and james in particular because you were one of my strongest advocates and you supported me as i ran that kickstarter with almost constant encouragement and you did that on top of parenting 
a very interesting young man. <laughs> so thank you. No, thank you. You mentioned the sensory projects. Could you tell us a bit more about all they've they've <laughs> well, diversified into so many different ways now. Can you tell us a yeah, little bit more? They've got rather <laughs> out of hand. The original sensory project was to write the five sensory stories. So it was the sensory stories project and the aim of that project is to create sensory stories that are affordable for the sort of price of a typical children's book. So my stories are fourteen pounds each, which is you know what you would pay for a book in Waterstones for a typical typically developing child. I wanted those stories to be resourced with a wide range of sensory experiences. So I wanted there to be tastes and smells in them as well as touches and sounds and sights. And I wanted them to be interesting stories to tell. And I, I do quite a few stories that I hope would appeal to older readers or older story experiences or ones that could be read at two levels because there's a wealth of children's literature that's very easy to turn into a sensory story. You know, everybody's been on a bear hunt and everybody's done Handler's Surprise. So whilst it's nice to add extra children's stories, there are existing children's stories. I like to write sensory stories that might have a broader appeal. So I have a sensory story that tells how stars are formed in Stella Nurseries. So it's like a, like a Brian Cox sensory story. And I have others that are about more, um, I was going to say adult topics, but that makes it sound rude. But you know, you know what I mean? Mm. And I was doing that project and I get asked to run training days for people. So I train a lot of special school teachers and speech and language therapy teams into how they, most of these people already use sensory stories. So I'm not sort of saying to them, hey, here's a new idea. I'm showing them how to use them more ambitiously and more inclusively and, and to just get more out of them. And I was asked by um, Cardiff University's art department to come and run a sensory stories training day for them. And it was quite an unusual booking because they wanted me to train, and it was an interdisciplinary group of artists. So I had ceramicists, graphic designers, sculptors, fine artists, all these different artists. Could I come and teach them about sensory stories? And I, like I said, yes. But I was thinking, why? Because most of the people that I talk to about sensory stories are supporting a child or an adult who has an additional need. And these were a bunch of artists. I was very puzzled. But I took the booking and I ended up standing in this room full of artists, extolling the benefits of narrative and all that can be got through enabling access to narrative. And then you stand there and you look at the room and you think, well, they're all artists. They all do art. I wonder why they do art. And I actually stopped what I was saying and just asked them all. And they gave really good answers. Nobody said, I paint a picture because I want a picture or I make a sculpture because I want a sculpture. They said things like, um, painting helps me to understand myself or it helps me to understand the world that I live in. It helps me to express things I can't express in words and it helps me with my mental health. And you think all of those reasons are gorgeous and I want those things for the for people with profound disabilities. And in the sensory telling of a story, I have a sensory way of facilitating the benefits of narrative. Maybe there's a sensory way of facilitating the benefits of art. And the benefits of art come about through being the creative agent in a process. And for people who have profound physical disabilities, they often find themselves to be, rather than the creative agent in the process, they're more one of the tools that gets, you know, somebody does hand printing with your hand, that, that's an interesting sensory experience, but you're not the creative agent. And so 
second sensory project was the Structured Sensory Art Project. And through the running of that project, we enabled eight artists with profound and multiple learning disabilities to independently create their own works of art. So they were the creative agent in their works of art. And then their works of art toured the UK in galleries as the exhibition uninhibited to reflect that creativity isn't inhibited by disability, raising awareness of the abilities of those artists and of the Changing Places campaign. But one of the things that was really tricky when running that project, because initially I thought that the challenge of the project was going to be how to overcome the mobility issues of my artists. You know, how can I enable somebody to paint who can't move their arms? And I set about designing all sorts of weird contraptions that they would wear that would help all of this stuff it was eventually scrapped the hardest part of that project was how you support the people facilitating to not overwhelm that individual with their own ability so if standing next to you Uh is somebody who is super brilliantly creative and can move the brush how do you stop that person from doing it and also how do you make sure that they are still a part of what's happening and what I recognized was I really needed those facilitators to be present in the studio for them to for their concentration and their attention to be on what was happening because we needed facilitation so subtle that if that person is you know thinking about their lunch break or remembering a thing that they have to do next all those busy thoughts that we have in our brains would detract from that very kind of subtle communication that happened and so I put in at the start of our studio sessions we just used to do a little two minutes of mindfulness practice and and I very quickly learned that I am no good at mindfulness because I would sit there and think right we'll just do our two minutes of mindfulness and then we'll get on with it oh and I'm not supposed to be thinking the, I'm supposed to just be thinking about them we'll just get on with this two minutes of mindfulness and then I'll set up no damn it <laughs> so I got somebody else in to run the mindfulness because I'm rubbish at it I got a friend of mine who's a welder and he was brilliant it's really interesting when you invite people who don't normally support individuals with different needs and abilities in to 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 work with them because they bring a different energy and this guy was great he just used to sit there and go right everybody put your feet on the floor breathe in breathe out and you're like oh god that's so simple when you say it like that when I'm doing it it's all oh and as we were doing that we were we found that we ended up looking at the artist sitting next to us as, as we, as linguistic beings, were struggling to herd our attention back to the present moment, you ended up just turning and looking at this person who was brilliantly in the present moment, almost effortlessly in the present moment. And some of our artists are people who can't anticipate the future and their brains are you know, structured such that it's very difficult for them to lay down memories of the past. So they exist in the present. And if you want to be with them and connect with them, you need to be there in the present too. So it's very important that you are there. And as we were turning to them to guide us in that mindfulness, you start thinking, well, does this mean that they are just being mindful all the time? If they can't imagine the future and they can't remember the past, are they just constantly mindful because we know that my lovely protective qualities it's protective against stress and anxiety and depression so are they in some way immune to these mental health problems that the rest of the population is facing and then you look into their mental health and the mental health needs of people with profound and multiple learning disabilities is terrifying 
basically it it matches their physical health care needs but their physical health care needs are very apparent and very provided for and there's lots of specialists and people who who support their physical health care needs and they are not eligible for services from child and adult mental health care services so their very high mental health care needs go unattended to and if you think about you know, if I was to tell you somebody had committed suicide, your first thought would be to mental health, not physical health. Physical health keeps us alive and mental health makes that life worth living. And so we are keeping these people alive, but we're not necessarily offering them support to make them feel that their lives are worth living. And I was thinking, OK, so here's a population at great need and mindfulness is one of these answers to these problems what would mindfulness be for them if they're already on the present, if their attention is already in the present? And then you think about if your present is, you know, the sound of that bus going past outside and the flickering of that light over there and that thing that it's a kind of jittery present. It's over there and over here and over there. And I was wondering whether if you could find some gorgeous sensory object that just kind of held you in a sensory presentness, maybe that would be their kind of mindfulness. And I did a very confusing thing because I started calling that sensory mindfulness sensory being with a hyphen. Mm. So sensory being was this engagement with a sensory object that kind of captured you, enveloped you in a present moment. And then around the same time that I was doing that project, this became the third project, by the way. This is the sensory being project that is still running three years later. Um, I began to talk about us as linguistic beings and and then I was using a different term I was calling the people I work on behalf of sensory beings. And you're a sensory being if your primary experience of the world and meaning within it is sensory, which led to the very confusingly titled book, Sensory Being for Sensory Beings, with the hyphen at the start. So it's Mm. like sensory mindfulness for, for people who are sort of sensory people in the world. And once I'd got three projects running, I am just one person Uh, I live in rural Cornwall. I have a young son. Um, I live on my own. So when I'm parenting my child, I'm doing so as a single parent. Um, Three projects is enough. Three projects is more than I can possibly manage. It's way, way beyond the aspirations that I had originally. Um, And so I decided last year um, to stop at three projects because three projects is enough. Um, So the fourth project started last September and the fifth one is due to start in the summer. It has got completely out of hand but it's a marvelous ride to be along for yeah um, what i would say is it takes a genius to make those connections that you've made you know because i certainly would never have thought of those things but i can see the importance of everything you're saying and i think everyone listening would agree with your points on mental health i mean we see more and more studies at the moment that show a gap between the lifespans of neurotypicals and say those on the autistic spectrum and understanding mental health and promoting good mental health is vital to improving those numbers so the ways you've devised to make things better will be used by all the professionals in practice that you meet and that will have a big impact on all the problems and on the communication issue i know uh, there was a case um, in america where for a long time they thought they had this uh, facilitated communication where they had a person taking down notes or with a communication tool taking hints from they they said they could um, understand what people with communication disabilities were communicating to them 
But when they swapped these professionals round to care for different people, it turned out that they were communicating something completely different. And it was the people doing the facilitated communication were letting their own influences come out in what was being communicated. So yeah. it's a similar thing to, to what you're I saying. I hear that a lot in the research that I read. When you have somebody who doesn't communicate in your modality, so you, um, if you're a verbal communicator, then verbal communication trumps everything else. When somebody doesn't produce your communication, so they don't produce verbal communication, the tendency for your, it's things like um, they take, they take Bob into the multisensory room and then they ask the carer who took Bob into the multisensory room what Bob thought of the multisensory room. And the carer says, oh, he really liked it in there. It was really relaxing. He really liked the opportunity to just stop and look at stuff. And you go, oh, did he? Or did you really like the opportunity to sit in? The... Is that your opinion sort of encompassing Bob? Or is that actually Bob's opinion? And that overwhelming of your their opinion and their capabilities by your capabilities and your opinions is very common and we need research methods that filter that out yeah absolutely um i've taken my son to sensory rooms because that's what i was told was good you know for him he's a he's a sensory seeker so i thought brilliant but there it's been the response has been very sort of limited but i found out through my own parenting it's because he doesn't like being in sort of confined dark spaces and sensory rooms have you know they've very often got the lights turned down and they're not always the biggest you know rooms so it, i found out when i was trying to get over his he had problems sleeping and going to he, he was um going to bed later and later i sort of in the end i was trying to fit him into the traditional way of putting him to bed in the end i disregarded that and i thought what would happen if i just he he's most relaxed when he's on on the sofa at night watching his little program his children's program what would happen if i just left him there and he fell asleep and from that you know instead of it going to bed at 1 a.m we went to bed at 10 p.m and then from that it's now gone to um 9 p.m so you know you can't you have to uh, do what's what's best for your child and and you, every every person is different every person with a disability is certainly different and yeah and um, different... have the confidence that you do know what's best for mm. your child your gut instincts are generally right mm. and different things are going to work for different people you know so you, let's go back to um what sorts of people attend your events uh, so I do a lot of training for staff who work in special schools. I meet a lot of speech and language therapy teams. I mm. meet a lot of adult care teams. Um, I get booked by parent support groups. And they, they're usually, you know, they, they have um, to be a support group for children, for parents who have children with Down syndrome or a support group for parents who have children with autism. So they're generally themed around a condition. Um, I also get to see a lot of heritage workers. That's quite fun. I get a lot of museums and heritage centres book me because they're looking for ways to make their um, the resources that they have more accessible. So mm. it's really good to see to see them. Um, and then occasionally I get booked by random art departments and people you wouldn't expect. So I, I get around and I also run my own events. And um, my own events is the same population of people attend. 
and I also get a lot of um, hospice workers and um, hospital education teams coming to those as well so it's nice I like it when I do when I do an event for an organisation, you go into a room for the people who already know each other and have supported similar people and have similar stories. And when I run my own event, different people from different places come and they have different insights from different backgrounds. And so you get this extra richness to the conversation because you can network all of those conversations. And quite often, I think if you were attending something like the lexiconary training, hopefully you'd get lots of information from me, but you would also get so much information from talking to the other people at tea break so it'd probably be as useful if i just held a giant tea break as if i talked to you all day well i think you're you're sort of training the next generation of um carers well i'm trying to but it's quite a scary situation that we're in currently because most of the people that i work for when i get booked as a trainer are experiencing cuts to their budget and are having less um training available to them mm. and i meet both sides of this frustration when I talk to parents and to professionals because I I hear from any number of parents online going why won't my child's teacher you know how can they not know this they and it feels to the parents as if those professionals supporting their children are careless but these are it's not stuff you just know you have to be taught it or you have to go and find and most of the professionals don't have time to go and find it out most parents don't have time to go and find it out they're too busy mm. parenting their child to go like i'm in a very unusual situation in that i spend oh goodness like i probably do three or four six to eight hour train journeys a week you know who else mm. has a block of eight hours where they're sitting down and couldn't do nothing but read the research i think it's only me which is why it's important that I share that information. And so I do that on the training days, but I also do it on social media and in, you know, the conversations that I have with people. I, I often say to people, I'm not, I'm not selling the information. I'll merrily give you the information away for free. It's not a, a, like a product of mine that I'm trying to flog. I'm, I'm trying to share that information around and one of the ways that I do it is writing books and obviously you have to pay for a book if you want to buy it you can get it from the library you can get your library to have it in it should be fine you know another way I do it is the training days but I also <laughs> watch my twitter feed my twitter feed is just an endless stream of little bits of the research that I'm reading and quite often somebody will read a tweet and then send me a message saying oh tell me more about that and then I can share that piece of research if it's relevant so the information is there sort of through all the different channels yeah i think what you're doing is a very selfless thing because you don't have to do that um another person might just sit on the train (laughs) um so all your work's been leading up to it you've had an impact you've created a thing called the or the core standards for pmld can you give a little talk about that so my work i've I've done, you know, the five sensory stories that were my biggest goal. I've got them. I've got all the sensory stories and all the sensory projects that have run on from that, which is beyond exciting. And then all sorts of other exciting things have happened. Like I got to do a TED Talk last year, and the background process of doing the TED Talk was extraordinary. And I co-presented my TED Talk with a friend of mine who is a sensory being. And I believe it's the only time that anybody with her kind of 
level of disability has taken to that TED red circle. So there's those sorts of exciting things. And like I was on I was on Radio Four. I've got the voice for it. Um, yeah. <laughs> oh, just daft things like Lush last year were giving away this gorgeous little coffee table book free, and it's a beautifully sort of created resource uh, all about essential oils. And there's an article in it about me. And there I am in this Lush book in the cardigan in my shed. And that book was given away globally in Lush stores globally. And it has meant that I've had emails from people in Switzerland going, hey, I went into my Lush shop and I found out about sensory stories and I know this child and could I could I do that with this child? And I've also um, had connections with people in third world settings. So I now support, um, oh, like half a dozen third world settings around the world just through social media so through email and facebook conversations i'm able to guide the people who support those individuals in those settings and when you look at those places you know one of them this one's not even in the third world this one is in europe they keep their people with profound disabilities in the basement because they can't respond to light they don't consider that they need access to daylight so they keep them in the basement without stimulation because they can't do so they don't offer and i'm able to have you know you might see the front stage part of what i do because i post lots of stuff on social media and you'll see when the projects win an award or you'll see when i've done a ted talk but the backstage conversations with settings like that and with individual parents are the best thing i do um but the most exciting thing I've been a part of, so being on, you know, winning awards and being in Lush and doing a TED Talk and having all the projects, the most exciting thing I've been a part of is the thing that sounds least exciting. So it is the new core and essential service standards for supporting people with profound and multiple learning disabilities. It's not an exciting or catchy name at all, but it very much does what it says on the tin. And much like the projects, it came about... Um, just through a conversation that got out of hand. So I was at an adult care event and somebody was talking to me about having had the inspecting body, so for them it was CQC in, to inspect their care provision. And it's quite a boring conversation. And it's a conversation that I have a lot, you know, oh, you've had Ofsted in, have you? Oh, how did it go? You know, it's very important to the settings. But to me, as somebody who hears a lot, you're like, oh, great, okay, yeah. And and I was just playing my part in that conversation. I was going, oh, you've had the inspectors in. Oh, it depends who you get. How did you do? And I wasn't really paying attention to the conversation. And then the man I was speaking to said something really strange. He complained that his setting had received too high a rating. And I, I have never had a teacher complain to me that their school got outstanding at Ofsted when it only deserved good. And so then I was paying a lot more attention to him. And he was saying, the trouble is when the inspectors come in, they don't have any standards that they inspect us by. And I was like, well, what, like, surely there must be like something you can't just even as somebody who knows you know a fair amount about how to support people with profound disabilities I would never think that I could step into a setting where I've not met those individuals before and accurately judge how they're being cared for and at the very least you would think you'd have a checklist to go mm, through absolutely. and I'm not a fan of paperwork at all but but I was so staggered that there wasn't anything. And he said, no, with regards to people with profound and multiple learning disabilities, there's nothing. And and I, my face just fell to the floor. And he said in a very low-key way, he said, 
I've been thinking somebody should write some. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> Hell yes, absolutely. I was like, yes, they should. And I know somebody who, because I get shipped around, I meet these motivated people in different places. So I was able to connect him up with a, somebody who works in another adult care setting as their research lead. And there was a researcher, um, a lady called Annie Ferguson, who has spent her life researching the lived experience of people with found and multiple learning disabilities. The four of us um, began the process. And between the four of us, so it was myself and Annie and Michael Fullerton was the person I was having the conversation with originally and Thomas Ducas was the person that we pulled in. Between the four of us, we asked everybody that we knew who had an insight into the lives of people with profound disabilities. So they were um, family members, they were professionals from all walks of life, just everybody we could think of was invited to contribute to this document. And I think there was around 140 people fed into the writing of it. And we all gave our time for free. And it was an 18 month writing process and it was very involved. And through that time, we set about writing down what best practice care should look like. And we made a decision very early on, should we write it down what it looks like now, what the best settings are doing now, or would we write down what it ought to look like? And we went with the latter, so it is an aspirational document. It's beautifully simple. I've seen it as, you know, huge sheets of paper on tabletops and as a horrible Word document that was totally impenetrable. Now, when you print it out, it is just six bullet points for what best practice care looks like at an organisational level and seven bullet points for what it looks like at an individual level. And it's been endorsed by NHS England and Norman Lamb, the Lord, wrote us a forward for it. So it's a beautifully presented document. It's very, very clear. And it's an aspirational document that states what the care should look like. Saying that it's aspirational makes it sound like... um, it's aspirational but it shouldn't be you know some Mm. of the bullet points are things like people should have their communication strategies respected like that should be basic Mm. that shouldn't be aspirational so it's an aspirational document in one regard but it's not in that the set the standards are things like that they should already be happening and in my naive little head, I thought we would just give it to the inspecting bodies. You know, we'd give it to CQC and we'd give it to Ofsted and they'd say, oh, thank you so much for doing all this work for us for free. This is mm-hmm. a really useful tool. But it turns out that's not quite how the world works. So we are still working on that. And that is, you know, if the inspecting bodies were to adopt it, what it describes would become a legal requirement. And it would change the face of care for those people nationwide in a very significant way. More than any of the changes that I've created through the projects that I do, it would change care provision for everybody with profound and multiple learning disabilities in this country. Failing getting it adopted by the inspecting bodies, what we want is like a grassroots thing. So we are already seeing this. It's wonderful. Lots of great organisations are taking it, looking at it and going, yeah, we do this, and then they champion it, and we go, at our place, we follow the core and essential service standards for supporting people with PMRD. Mm. Loads of organisations are using it as an evaluative tool, so they look through and they go, yeah, we're good at that one, we're good at that one, oh, we need to work on this, you know, let's get some training in, let's let's see how we can better do this one. And so they're using it to drive up their provision. And then <laughs> I did. I spoke to a lady who's from a Duff setting, <laughs> And she she gets like no support from her bosses and and all sorts of I I hear from her a lot because there's a lot of problems with where she works but she looked at it and she said I don't think my bosses will know 
that this isn't legal. I'm just going to give it to them and tell them that it is. He's like, yeah, that works. That will change care for those people. That's brilliant. And absolutely, we want parents to know about it because you get to a point in your child's life where they enter adult services and then you are effectively shopping for their provision. When you place your child with an adult service provider, they earn money from that placement. So your business to them and they, they are looking to make a profit. And so if you go up to somebody and go, are you following these standards? And they say, no, you go, okay, I'm taking my business elsewhere. That actually is probably a stronger motivator than it being a legal requirement. So if people are aware that those standards are out there and ask and expect people to follow them, then that drives up the care, whether they're legal or not. So you can download them for free from the PMLD link journal's website and you can also download them for free from my website at the sensory projects and just you know just download them print them off leave them around places you know next time you go to the doctors just leave one on the coffee table at the doctor's surgery or just pop one into your local hospital just spread them about the place because we would like to see more people aware of them and following them yeah that's so important um and i'm shocked that there was nothing in place so i think we'll leave it there so um, would you like to give everyone some way of contacting you? So you can um, find me. The simplest thing to do is just to go to my website because the contact page there has the links to my Facebook and my Twitter and my LinkedIn and all those different things. So my website is just www.thesensoryprojects.co.uk and I am more than happy to hear from people. I'm on a train. I'm just reading boring research. It's much more fun to talk to a person. So do feel free to send me a friend request or send me a message or tweet me. I'm very happy to be contacted. If the information I have is useful to you, you are more than welcome to it. I'm uh, definitely going to back that one up. Yeah, definitely. I think everyone should. <laughs> You'll probably get a, a huge influx of people <laughs> contacting you now. research read. <laughs> Our thanks to you for coming on the podcast and for sharing all your knowledge with us. I'm sure all of our listeners will appreciate hearing about the sensory world and all of your work in training and educating carers and care professionals about it. And I think your efforts are laying the foundations for big improvements in standards of care around the country. And long may you continue in that. Thank you so much. And, and I think we'll leave it there. Okay. Thank you.